Welcome back to Hieronymus and Company's 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus this evening, friends, and tonight we're going to be reviewing a book called Incident at Fort Benning. Is it possible that in September 1977, during the Joint Attack Weapons Systems Test at Fort Benning, Georgia, that the entire base was invaded by a UFO, leaving soldiers temporarily frozen in a sleep-like state. In all of our UFO programming over the past 12 years, we've referred to that sleep-like state frequently. Were approximately 1,300 troops abducted by space aliens? Why did troops battle each other? with live ammunition, chase, chase each other over the entire restricted area, enter a time-space warp fight with a giant eel. Cryptozoologists would have a great time here. Confront a UFO in military battle and then receive a complete brainwashing by an army psychiatrist. And is it possible that one soldier, John Vasquez, Vasquez, sorry, my apologies, John Vasquez, stationed at Fort Bennington during this bizarre incident, could have remembered the events despite the power of mind control? You know how many shows we've done on mind control, friends? Why does the Army continue to deny any knowledge of the JAWS or JAWS test? when the authors have evidence to the contrary. Army recruit John Vasquez has endured many years of anxiety and fear due to his involvement, and he relates his story with the help of Bruce Stephen Holmes, who's with us as well. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Bruce and John, or John and Bruce if you're left-handed. Hey, thanks very much. Good to be there. Is that Bruce? That's me. That's Bruce Stephen Holmes. And where's John? Right here. John, you're right over there. Well. If you had stereo, I'd be on the right and he'd be on the left. Or, or <laughs> you know, it, I could, you could, it could be switched around, you know. But yeah. however, however, Bruce, I know you only have a, a few minutes you can spend with us. So let's focus on your part in this work because, you know, I just read the back cover of this book. I couldn't have put a better introduction together myself than that. Uh, how did you react to hearing this? I mean, you are a UFO researcher. You've done TV programming. Is this correct? Yeah, TV and radio. Uh, as a matter of fact, Bob, uh, I don't know if you remember, but we talked back around 1988, 89, when I had my show, Timeless Voyager Radio. Is that so? That's right. My executive producer mentioned that to me. But in my state of, of uh, rushing here and rushing there, it slipped my mind. Bruce, well, it's good to talk <laughs> with you again. So but you, anyway, you've, been uh, this, you've been in this area a long time. You know this field, is that right? Yes, uh, only dwarfed by you. <laughs> <laughs> you've been doing this show for many, many years, and, and uh, um, just about everybody who does a show like this definitely uh, owes it to someone like you who started this whole thing, as far as I know. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, anyway, uh, just to answer your question, um, I was doing uh, an interview uh, format for uh, a, a radio, actually a television program, at the uh, UFO Congress back in February 
of, uh, I believe it was 1998, in Laughlin, Nevada. Well, I'll be. Um, and that's a show that's uh, put together. It's an excellent, excellent, excellent program. They usually have about uh, 20 or 30 speakers. And I was interviewing each one of them. And my producer came up to me while I had about a one-hour wait and said, you know what, there's a guy out in the hall who's not a speaker, but he's got an incredible story. Would you like to talk to him? And I thought for a few moments, and I thought, okay, why not? I've got a, an hour. I'll, I'll talk to him. So in comes John Vasquez, who I knew nothing about. As I said, he wasn't even listed as a speaker. And he sat down and started telling me this story. Well, no sooner had he gone through about five minutes of the story, I said, hold on, stop. I said, let's turn on the cameras and let's, let's record this. So we, we interviewed, or rather I interviewed, and, and uh, we uh, filmed John Vasquez for a half hour. After I heard this story, I was absolutely baffled. I, I just could not believe it. I mean, I thought I had heard of everything in the UFO community. But this particular time, I had really been shocked. 1,300 troops being, uh, or, or let's say up to 1,300 troops, being abducted all at the same time, witnessing something like this, was beyond anything I'd ever heard about. So needless to tell you, uh, needless to say, I asked John as he was there, I said, well, do you have any evidence of this? And he pulls out a book kind of like a loose-leaf book, with about 500 pages of documents. Way to go, John. <laughs> Thank you. That's really key. I mean... Well, yeah, and I look at it, and I think to myself, well, at least, at least if this guy has made up the story, at least he has documented everything with, with uh, letters and, and all kinds of documents from uh, the Pentagon, from military, uh, from, from psychiatrists and, and Congress people. My goodness, he had so much material, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, uh, I won't talk too much about it because I want John to tell you a little bit about the story, but I will finish this by saying we uh, lost touch, but uh, John did call me once about maybe, oh, six months later and asked me if I was interested in, in uh, publishing his book. And I said to him, well, sure, send it to me. And he said, well, I don't have it written down. <laughs> and I said, so in other words, you're looking for someone to help you write a book. And he said, well, I guess that's what I need. And I said, well, um, call me when, when you're ready. So time went by. I think it went by maybe a, a year or so. He called me back. And he said, Bruce, uh, basically you're my only hope. You've got to help me with this thing. Obi-Wan. Right. So I said to him, I said, all right, John, here's how we'll do it. I said, we'll, we'll, uh, inter I'll interview you. We'll do an interview over the telephone. And I did about 30 hours of interviews time with him. Transcribed most of it, wrote down the book as you see it in front of you, and the rest is, so, so we say, in the business history. Here we are. So I hope that wasn't too long an explanation, but I think it kind of starts out things for us. Well, it does more than that. It gives us great insight into your characters, Bruce, because, you know, here... Is, Here's an individual that comes to you that uh, needs some help, and instead of you pointing your finger somewhere out there in Venezuela and saying, so, you, you know, here's, the <laughs> here's somebody else that'll do it, you, you did it. And that kind of service is enormously important in this kind of work today. 
because most people have this strange idea that UFO researchers uh, are making all kinds of money. You're on television day and night making tens of thousands of dollars a week, aren't you, Bruce? Bruce. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, you're not. I mean, and who is? Who is? No one is. You know, there may be two or three people that are making a living, so to speak, but, but when skeptics take a look at this area, that's the yeah. first thing they say is, hey, I know why Bruce did this. He's going to make $50 million in two weeks. That's the reason why Bruce makes <laughs> your... BS. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's the key. It's key to remember that you will be hit by this time and time again. But it won't make any difference, will it? Well, you know, as you know, Bob, and certainly as John knows, um, we're, uh, this is a labor of love. And yes, actually, that's for right. John, that's I right. think when you talk to John and start to get a little idea... What John is trying to do is bring some closure to this incident. Right. Because for him, this all started for him in 1989, even though the incident occurred in 1977. As you know, after looking at the book, John's situation was that he lived for approximately 12 years not knowing that this had ever happened. And then all of a sudden, one morning, he woke up from a very incredible nightmare. And John, why don't you take it from there and tell him a little bit about it? Well, um, it, it was uh, it was uh, quite a, uh, a terrifying nightmare. Um, I know people have nightmares, um, and I heard that nightmares uh, sometimes uh, are mild, and considering what sort of dreams they had or, or uh, phases of dreams. But mine was mine mine nightmare was uh, a nightmare where I bolted my bed and I was firing, shaking, uh, all the symptoms of having something terrible. I was seeing something terrible, frightening. Um, it was something blurry. Um, I didn't know what it was. It was just a blurry figure or blurry something. Uh, I woke up everybody in the, in the house. Um, I told my wife, um, I just had a real terrible nightmare. I, I don't know what it was, but it was something blurry. And, uh, well, she just calmed me down and said, just go back to bed and, and forget about it, which, which I sort of calmed myself down a little bit before I went back to bed. And, well, the next morning, my wife was in the kitchen making breakfast. I was on the coffee table having coffee, and, and I started um, thinking about this blurry image and um, slowly it became clearer and clearer and it was crystal clear and it was one of my friend's face in this formation that I was in and I told myself I know this guy I've seen his face before and, uh, you know, I, I, and the images that came across from that point on was about him and I running uh, from this formation. And I, I didn't know why we were running at first. You know, something, was, something was frightening us. And we started to run. I told my wife that I need to talk to a doctor about this because I thought maybe I was hallucinating something here and something was going wrong. Um, 
I called up the doctor. I told him uh, that I need to see him. Uh, he suggested to make a, an appointment for me to go to his office and talk to him, which I did. And uh, we sat down, and, and, and I told him the story. Well, we'll find out how he reacted and what you did after that. Now, friends, th this is an important work, in my opinion. And the reason why it's, it, I'll tell you how important it is to us. We receive maybe a thousand books a year. And this book, if we would have eventually gotten to it in November, December, we thought was just too, too distant away. And I didn't have time to read it until the book arrived. And I, and I read it last night. This is an important story. And it's connected to many other experiences other Americans in the military are having. Our guests are Bruce Stephen Holmes and John Vasquez, author, excuse me, publisher and author of Incident at Fort Benning, Timeless Voyager Press. What a name, Timeless Voyager Press. www.timelessvoyager.com. To order, call 1-800-576-8463. 1-800-576-86, excuse me, 8463. Now, John, you went to the doctor, and um, as a matter of fact, how much help was the doctor? Uh, he was a great help. Um, we uh, started, I started discussing about uh, the event, and he's, he's a clinical psychologist, PhD. Um, he listened he asked questions, uh, stopped me from, from time to time to uh, go back to what I started remembering and then follow up on uh, deeper discussions about uh, what the event was. And uh, it brought back a lot of memories and, and uh, it did help me to uh, control about my fears and my anxieties and stress. Um, How did you hear about this clinical psychologist? Uh, my wife knew him. And uh, she said, why don't you call him? Mm -hmm. So I did. Good karma for you. Now, yeah, uh, it, it was a good help, and um, uh, it did help me to uh, uh, pass up on a lot of uh, uh, post-traumatic stress that I have. Well, we're going to touch on that again, especially during the second hour. But uh, once I started to read your book, which was just two nights ago. I just couldn't put it down. And, and uh, I was so thankful for the documentation in the back. This is enormously important. I know you must have had much more to put in the book, but, but it really is important to doc try to document these things. Just the movement in the direction of doing so brings things towards you. Uh, I don't expect you to believe that, but that's what I believe. So, um, so Bruce... What I'm going to do right now is something terrible. Well, wait, you know, let me comment on something you said. That's, that's very true. As a matter of fact, what, what I discussed many times with John was that when he spent time going through this, each one of those documents, each one of those letters, some of those letters took six months for responses. He started this in 1989. Remember, I met him in 1998. He'd already been working on it for nine years. Nine years of correspondence. People need to understand this. Nine years of correspondence. It helped him to understand and remember. That's why the story is so clear. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I think the point that I'm making is, yes, he, he, John would definitely agree with you. I do want to say something real quickly for your listeners, and that is the book is definitely available through Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble, I'm sorry, Barnes & Noble, uh, Borders. You can get it just about anywhere. As a matter of fact, they can even get it from our website. Because That's you're, right. Why you're don't you tell them about that? Just go up to 21stCenturyRadio.com, click on to UFOs. There you will find uh, John Vasquez's name. You click on the John Vasquez, you can go and order his book from there, and then you can go directly to his website. Right. Or your website, www.timelessvoyager.com. <laughs> now, uh, I had a series of questions because, um, and these questions uh, and I w don't want to spend too much time on because there's some real important stuff that happens, but I th I, we got to do some real nuts and bolts here, sure. uh, John. John, uh, what was your purpose? You can keep your answers short to this, we're, and we're gonna. This is gonna bleed on to the next segment because we only got about a minute now. But your purpose at being at Fort Benning was what? My purpose at Fort Benning was uh, 11 Bravo, which was uh, infantry, uh, infantry advanced infantry training. So you were in training. Yes, sir. You wanted to be a truck driver. Uh, that truck driver uh, MOS was given to me. Uh, prior. Our guests are John Vasquez and Bruce Stephen Holmes, the publisher and author of this important work. And um, what I've related to John is I'm going to ask him a series of questions re requiring just brief answers so that we can get our, have our listeners visualize what happened because I think it's enormously important to kind of see through your eyes quickly what happened and then we can have uh, Bruce, as we're doing this, if there's important commentary that you need to make, you just bought in. Is that all right? I'll do it. Okay, John? Yes, I'm here. Okay, John. Now, on Sept it's September 1st, 1977. It's after 8 p.m. Something was seen moving across the sky. What did you folks see? Uh, it was September 2nd, Friday. Fr September 2nd, okay, sorry. And it was 8. Uh, we went out on formation about 7.30. We're standing there for about 40, uh, 35 minutes, and uh, we were waiting for our company commander to uh, step away from this building to uh, give us this uh, speech about our training course. Well, during that time where all of us, which means Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta Company, all, were all present at this mandatory parade formation, and there's about rough estimates 1300 men is a company approximately 300 people 300 people okay roughly roughly, roughly. Uh -huh. not exact but roughly 300 people so captain k was about to give you a speech and what happened well during this um uh during this time uh, someone in front of me said something about about what's that and i didn't pay any attention at first uh, i didn't know what he was talking about but he said it again this time he said, what's that up there? So my curiosity sort of got the best of me. So I kind of turned and I looked and he was pointing or he was saying something up there in the right side of the sky. And I looked up and all I saw was stars. You know, I, I told him, all I see is stars. And he said, wait, wait, watch it. Watch that one star to the right. So I watched it for a few minutes, 
maybe less than a minute, and all of a sudden it moved. And it gradually moved across the sky. And how to explain that is, is this way. You take an ice cube, you set it on a flat floor, and you move it across the floor, and it moves like a, like in a smooth motion. No rigid motion, just smooth motion. And you see that star moving that way, and it stops. It goes away. Come back, stop, and moves again real smooth across the sky, and it stops. And it goes, goes away again, come back, and, and it moves again. And about this time, one of our sergeant told us to stand at attention. Now, you're not supposed to move. I kind of glanced up to see where this thing went. It was gone. By this time, Captain started walking, walking out of his building and stepping onto this podium. He was about to start the speech. I hear this rushing noise from my left. I'm not supposed to move, but I kind of lean backwards just a tiny bit to see what, what this thing was. And I glanced over to my left, and I see Charlie Company men, some of them, running out of formation. Others were standing still. And I see this bright light, intense bright light, coming down the dirt road. I didn't know what that was. I thought it was a jeep or a truck. So I, I leaned forward. I, I, I leaned back and leaned forward just a bit to see what this thing was. And by this time, it was really close to us, and it was tree-level line. And it was bright, kind of bluish, a little bluish outline, bright, intense light. Well, I was about to say something to this guy who was standing in front of me. And I looked up, and he was asleep. His eyes were closed. He still had his army cap on, and his head was bowed. I, I couldn't say anything. He was asleep. So I leaned back again, just just tiny bit, and I don't know what happened here, but I became unconscious. The next thing I was aware, the surrounding around me was that I was looking downwards at my boots, and I couldn't move. I tried desperately to move away from where I was standing. I tried everything. I mean, I tried to get away from what, this, what was happening, but I couldn't move. The only part of me that could move was my upper torso, so I turned right, and I see my friend, one of my buddies who was standing next to my right, running. And I see some people, some of the men standing still. Others are running to the tree lines. The rest were, some of them were diving underneath, under, underneath us up, cross space, which was two feet high. And I cried out or screamed to, to, for my buddy to come back and help me, which he did. And he physically removed me from where I was standing. Mm. He pulled me away from it. Mm. I sort of jumped away from that position I was standing at. And he was screaming, 
take cover, take cover. I was screaming, what's going on? Well, I told him I wanted to see the, where the captain was. We both started to run to where the captain was. We saw him. He was standing behind his podium. I yelled for the captain to wake up. He didn't. He was asleep. He was asleep. Behind let's, his podium. Let's pause here so I can go to Bruce on this. Bruce, uh, the experience of the men being asleep and the luminous light and the... Obviously, there are other parallels uh, throughout the history of ufology in this area. Would you comment on that, please? Well, my only comment, Bob, is this. Um, when I heard this, I thought to myself, this is very interesting. Uh, we, know about, we know about missing time. It almost appears as though for some odd reason, John somehow had a memory during a time where most, I would, I would assume, since not many of the 1,300 have ever come forward at this point, I would assume that most of them, including John, at least for the first 12 years, experienced this as missing time. And as if you remember, uh, rather than probably just jump forward, <clears throat> John says that all of a sudden, after this whole thing was over, and of course there's a little bit more to it, they were all back in formation. And no one talked about it. Right. So we are looking at, at something, I think, rather interesting in that he has a slight memory of what was going on during what most people refer to as missing time. And you know yourself, when you interview a lot of, a lot of the uh, UFO experiences, especially the abductions, most people will tell you a story, <clears throat> and then they'll, they'll basically say, and then I was in my car again, or wherever they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So this is what it reminds me of, a missing time episode. So we have John uh, underneath the barracks, uh, the buildings of the barracks, uh, the little crawl space there, two, three feet high, or two feet high. And you were then visited by a huge luminous ball of light. What happened? Well, uh, jumping from where I was just finishing, uh, that part, the huge, you know, uh, this ball of light it started from the first building and it just gradually moved across from the first building. Um, it was so bright that it silhouetted all the frames on the glass windows, the, the boards. I mean, you could see the light just seeming right through the boards. I mean, it was bright, huge, bright, white light. And it gradually moved across the first building. And you could see underneath the building there was people underneath there, and we, we, we were pounding the ground, the guys who were underneath with, um, the building with me were pounding the ground to wake those guys up and see if they're going to uh, either leave that area or not, and they didn't move at all. They were knocked let me, out. Let or... me jump in for a second here, John. Yes. You know, Bob, it's an interesting point here, and I remember when I interviewed uh, John about, uh, oh, maybe a year ago on this particular part, I remember him describing this, so let me kind of remind you, and, and I know John you know, telling the story, but just picture this. It's dark. You're under a building, and this light was so bright that as it passed around, you could see, if you looked up from the crawl space, you could see the light in the uh, cracks of the floorboards. You could see, if, uh, when you were outside, if you, when, the, when it passed around the back of the building, you could see see, that's how bright the light is, mm -hmm. it was actually 
would illuminate the cracks in the boards. That's how bright this thing was. And of, and of course, uh, in our in doing interviews, especially on South American UFOs, when big lights from UFOs would come in, this is the same process. It's a, it's a light that seems to permeate, can go through physical objects as well. Uh, but you heard a female voice, didn't you, John? Uh, yes, uh, I, I heard this metallic, sort of faraway voice, it's a female voice, and it said, it's okay. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Come out. Well, I heard this, and I'm, I'm asking my buddies underneath the building if they heard, they heard anything at all. And they kind of look at each other and looked at me like I was, oh no, that's something's wrong. Something's wrong with Vasquez, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I hear this this metallic, far away, echoing like voice. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Come out. But we'll re- we'll return to that female voice. Do you think that female voice ended up being that first lieutenant psychiatrist? No. No, it wasn't. This was an, a metallic, almost like a machine or a faraway echo sort of metallic voice, a female voice. What what was that? What did that mean by "What is this"? That voice said, "What is this?" No, it, it it's it, it's okay. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Yeah, let me jump in on this for a second, Bob. Yeah. Here's what's happening. <clears throat> John, and, and, and a lot of people ask this question all the time when they read the book, because they start asking questions like this. Well, why did John remember and nobody else remembers? Uh, why is it at the end of the book where John actually, uh, in a sense, uh, channels or somehow is part of the communication between the extraterrestrial and the general? Uh, and then people who are listening to this probably getting a little confused, but that's the way books are. Uh, when, when you don't know a lot about them, but to just to at whet everyone's appetite. One of the things that I saw right away was that for some reason, John was singled out. We su- we're supposing now that this might be one of the reasons why he's remembered, even though there was this massive brainwashing. Mm-hmm. He was singled out by this extraterrestrial who he later meets uh, during the sequence where he is actually on board the, Uf- the UFO. That's correct. So well, that's the voice. So, John, you heard a female voice. It was a metallic voice, and we actually didn't have not finished with that experience uh, under the uh, barrack barracks um, uh, floor there, because you actually you detected a small figure. Is that correct? Uh, when I crawled out from this um, cross space, yeah, um, one of the guys are following me and. He was crawling the same way I was, and and, it, and the light was so intense. I, I had to keep staring on the ground so I knew where I was going. I still had my uh, army cap on, and I stopped. And I, I had I had to look back to see if anyone was following me, and someone was. And I told him to stay back, just don't don't follow me. Just he, he rejected. And, uh, didn't he wanted to follow? I said no, just stay back. And uh, I continued on and crossed through uh, this uh, sidewalk pavement and continue on to this grassy mall. Uh, I stood up 
and turned left, and I see this intense bright light shining in front of me. And I see this this, this shadowy figure, uh, a real small shadowy figure, real quick, scurry right back into the light again. Well, I don't know what that was, but it just disappeared into the light. And I lifted my left hand to shield this glare because the light was so intense. Something hit my shoulder, and it sounded like a fuse being blown. Well, I got sick, and I went down, and I could hear one of my buddies calling out my last name and, and reaching for me, and I tried to reach for him, and something else hit my back, and again, it sounded like a fuse, uh, a fuse being blown. I became unconscious. Now, what happened between now and what took place in this time frame here is that I was covered Something was covered over my body. And my whole body was tingling. Like there was a thousand ants crawling all over it, tingling. And I had someone standing on my left, another one standing on my right. And one of them was saying, don't open your eyes. And I feel this lifting. Um, how to describe it is, is that you're on an elevator and being lifted, but you're off the ground. You're not touching ground. And you're moving upwards. And I look at, I open my eyes gradually and groggily uh, open my eyes. I can see a light in front of me that I'm getting closer to. And I lean my head to my right a little and I just see some, some of the men being lifted, following me. So I turn my head straight forward again, and we're all close to this light. Next thing I remember is that something on my left came real quick, and it turned in unison and went away real fast. And I hear this female voice again ask me, do you remember? And I said, remember what? Well, I felt this, this carrying, this, 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 um, how to describe the feeling as that it was concern. But here, the last when last we were with John, he was in a room uh, with a, a huge curved dome. There were other soldiers lying on metal-like floating tables or slabs. Two beings were at each of their sides. They appeared to be examining each uh, a person. And he was told at that time, uh, a, a female voice told him, at that time to go to sleep he later woke up and he was looking at a male being which disturbed him and uh, that as i noted here he, because it frightened him 
and it had these al almond-shaped eyes. Now, certainly that's a, a very popular image there in UFO ufology. Now, he kept asking you to look at his eyes. Dr. David Jacobs and his important work and others have, have made a, a real interesting uh, hypothesis about that. Bruce, do you want to note anything about that? Well, I think at this point, uh, I'd like to hear what Dr. Jacobs has to say, because I actually uh, have not, uh, I'm not familiar with this. So oh. why don't you tell us? Oh, certainly. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that, Bruce. Uh, well, basically, it, was, uh, it, it, it is a method by which they can affect individuals by uh, making them feel love. It's a contact of making them feel love and control. As a matter of fact, I think we have an extra copy of his book that reviews that some of that material. If we have it, I'll make sure we put it in the box and send it to you, okay? Yeah, but you know, to, to make a comment on that, you know, um, as many people uh, know, or at least as we have understood it so far, the uh, one thing about the, um, uh, the different extraterrestrial races, certainly the grays, I think, are the ones that we're, we seem to understand this time, at the, the most at this point. They seem to be lacking their own emotions, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, that you bring up an interesting point because it seems like what they like to elicit is anything that will will work, whether it's fear, or love, or grief, or fright. And then, and I don't think they know the difference for us. In other words, I don't think they know that we prefer, let's say, love and comfort. <laughs> versus fright mm -hmm. but i think from their standpoint they're just interested in the idea of the emotions which they lack that's a very good point and uh there's there's some interesting uh, hypothesis and theories uh dealing as to why that is and one which i don't expect um, uh, to, to be proven at this time is that they lack certain bodies and one of the bodies they lack along esoteric lines is called an astral body and That's I, I've heard that too. And if that is possible, that means, of course, they wouldn't have emotions, and so they wouldn't have. Right, they lack the emotional yeah. body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and Incidentally, uh, Bob, uh, uh, John, I've told John this. I'm telling you, I'm going to be leaving you in about three or four minutes. As I told you, I have a very special right. uh, yes. engagement. So let me just uh, jump in before John continues his story and just say that in the book there are 82 pages of documents. Uh, like I told you before, there are over 500 originals. Um, I took that down to 82. I photocopied them. I worked with them. I cleaned them up using Photoshop. They're real clear. They sure Most are. of the documents pretty much uh, go ahead and support uh, our findings. And I think maybe I'll just quickly go over what we believe are the four issues here, and then John can, can fill this all in later. But what we're always confronted with is how do you know that this happened since there has not been very much corroborating testimony and what we have pointed to are basically um, four different aspects of the uh, let's call it the emerging proof and uh, three of them and, and uh, actually, I'll just, just mention all four of them, and, and John will mention these later, but I just want to bring them up now so that we do get to that. We know uh, four things. One, we know that there was the Joint Attack Weapons System test, 
which was conducted during this time. Now, we also know that it has been not only denied by the government, but confirmed, depending on when we have spoke, uh, who has written the, the uh, letters back and what has been found. John will fill you in on that. So that's one aspect that lets us know that something happened in September of 1977. The second thing that we had discovered, and as John will mention to you, is that there was definitely an um, orchestrated effort by the military to somehow cover the fact that soldiers were involved in a battle, and John's going to talk about that battle after I leave. They tried to cover it up by, by claiming there was a measles outbreak on the post, and at the same time, we have proof that there was a measles outbreak. We have all kinds of, uh, not only testimony, but articles and documentation. It was denied constantly by the military that it ever happened. The third, and these, of course, are all the smoking guns, the third part of this is that during this particular incident, two choppers were downed. Now, normally, you don't find choppers being downed on a base. This happened during the exercises that John's going to mention to you, where there was an actual uh, combat going on between uh, the UFO and, and the troops. So we have confirmed the two downed choppers. And the fourth, and probably the most interesting of all of these, is that during this time, probably just after it, the Secretary of the Army at that time, Clifford L. Alexander, actually shows up in Fort Benning, which is not that important, really, when you get down to it, and claims to be there because there is the American Newspaper Publishers Association meeting, which, if you know anything about the uh, meetings that these people conduct, they're usually in New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. So those are the four smoking guns. Uh, check out the book. Everybody who's read the book has found it to be really good. Um, I, I feel very good about it. We spent very, very little time developing the story. Basically, it's factual. It's very easy to read, as you noticed. I did not spend a lot of time putting in a lot of uh, character descriptions and things like that. We just went to the basic facts. And then we went to the appendix, which is nice and big. It's got the 82 documents. And there's a question and answer period uh, at the end between myself and John where I ask some pretty good questions of him. The point of the book is when you get done, you can actually make a decision about whether you think it happened or didn't happen. So we don't skew it in any way. Even though I co-wrote this with John, remember, I didn't have the experience. He did, and I'll tell you what. There's some pretty incredible information coming your way. Well, thanks again for joining us, Bruce. It's good to connect with you again, and we're sending you some propaganda as well. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to it, and I'll talk to you later. <laughs> All right. All right, John, goodbye, and okay. good luck. All right. Well, John, we find that um, uh, this, uh, let's, let's start at the point where this, this male-like figure is, is trying to stare into your eyes and wants you to stare into his eyes, and, and you do, and then you see something. Yes, um, um, male figure, and I, I know it was a male because uh, the way he uh, presented himself, uh, it was a demeanor like uh, uh, who's in command. And he wanted uh, me to look into his eyes for some reason. I rejected. I I was afraid. I I, I admitted. I I was afraid to look into his eyes. And it's it's a large black eyes. Um, it's like looking into uh, a blackness. It's just 
dark black eyes. But you did see something. Well, the reason why he uh, demanded I look into his eyes is that is that he was um, wanted to um, show me sort of images which came across my mind, uh, my mind, and the images started with myself standing in the middle of the ocean, no land for hundreds of miles. I'm just standing on on, on the ocean, blue sky, and that was for about a few minutes of this picture. It's a beautiful picture of an ocean in the sky. The next image that came across was a planet being destroyed. Um, you could see volcanic eruptions. Uh, the planet just spewing away from the atmosphere. Yeah, as you note, the land and the oceans were going up into the atmosphere, followed by eruptions of orange volcanic clouds. Orange volcanic. Mm -hmm. color, color was red, orange, brownish, and it was just a, a planet. Uh, it could have been Earth, could have been some other planet. I don't know. And the last image you saw was a face of this humanoid again, is that right? Yes, this humanoid had a dressing. White, pale dressing. Face is white, pale. No eyebrows. No eyelashes. He had pupils like mercury. Long, narrow, uh, bridge-like nostrils. Uh, a small lip, pointed chin, and the, and, and, his, and his skin tone was pale, paste-like white. Now, after this image faded, you lost consciousness for an un undetermined amount of time, and well, you you became aware that you were back in formation at the base with everyone else. As far as I remember, when all of us were back in formation. My buddy and I was standing at the second line. Now we're standing at the fourth line. Mm -hmm. I looked across and I see one of the drill sergeants uh, who's, uh, when it, who was dressed in a summer uniform. Well, he had his, uh, all his medals on and we knew who, who was who controlled the, the other sergeant, drill sergeant there, and uh, apparently he had an accident. He uh, cursed and walked away, and uh, that's when uh, another drill sergeant told us to go back to our barracks. He had, um, the, the I turned accident? and I said, where's the speech? Do we have a speech? Well, he just, just said, go back to the barracks. We lost our balance. I know I lost my balance. You were disoriented then. Very disoriented. So was everybody else. And when you went, got back to the barracks, you noticed uh, that your shirt was, un was buttoned unevenly, your trousers were buttoned out of sequence, your boots had the most ridiculous tying that you had ever seen, and you also noticed a gooey substance on your trousers, which you wiped off. Uh, what did that look like, that gooey substance? Did it have any color? Uh, a clear. 
It was clear. A clear substance. Um, looked like paste. Um, it was a solid, like cream, clear cream. And you didn't keep any of this, did you? Oh uh, no, I just threw it in the uh, washer uh, duffel mm -hmm. bag and mm -hmm. left it in there. Then you began to smoke. Uh, excuse me. You began to to smell a smoky odor, and you donned. Fortunately, you guys donned gas masks. But a sergeant S appeared, and he asked you to re to remove them. Right. He uh, saw all of us outside with our gas mask on, and and uh, he was screaming out of it, screaming at us to at first why all of us are out here with gas mask on, mm -hmm. and. Uh, well, he pulled my gas mask off, and and uh, he wanted everybody else to do the same. And we informed Sergeant S or Sergeant S um, to breathe the air real deep. Mm -hmm. Well, he objected at first and screamed that you guys should go back in the barracks. And we asked him again, please, uh, you know, breathe the air real deep. So he did, and uh, well, he became sick. And uh, he passed out. Do you have any idea what was in the air? Uh, oh, I don't know. It could have been uh, anything. Uh, it could, could it have been because we really have yet to get to the major encounter, haven't we? Mm. we had, I mean, that this is a very uh, lengthy incident, friends. It happened over several days, and it all seems to be one long, continuous picture. Right. It, yeah, it, it took about uh, three to four weeks until she arrived, the lieutenant. Okay, so the next morning, uh, you noted that your watches had stopped and, uh, at various times and your clothes were stained, etc. And, uh, but... That was last night. You were going yeah. the next morning, but um, that night when we uh, were told to go back to our vic barracks, we got sick and we, our watches were stopped and the men were uh, reacting, well, behaviors were really odd. Odd behaviors. Some went to sleep with flashlights on and uh, covered themselves with their blankets. Other, another guy was bolted uh, uh, out of his bed and went in a wall. We didn't have time to really get into the war game situation and why the Green Berets were were called in and and uh, the live ammunition issue, right. uh, which was was important. And we won't have time to spend on that because. We have very limited time. In the interest of time, I'm going to do a type of an abbreviated summary, which may or may not be uh, totally accurate. But I, we need to get to the point uh, where you are questioned by the female lieutenant psychiatrist and pressured to lead the army because it seems that something happened in this experience that didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily supposed to. You meet. Um, you needed to replenish your provisions, and that's when. And you were doing so when you ran into this giant thing in the water. You meet with uh, General L and work out a deal to exchange your live ammunition. Uh, you find later that you were surrounded by tanks or a tank or so, and men. The general General L's men fired upon using live ammunition. Is this correct? Well, we're. we're Right now we're in a stage where we're talking about the battle. We're back in the, at the barracks after the bivouac site, campsite, and uh, when we got back, we uh, encountered. Uh, at first, we, everything was normal. We 
then within a couple of days, we encounter about, I think it was about uh, 9.30 in the evening, we encountered our barracks lights flickering off and on. Um, I thought maybe somebody was uh, uh, playing with a switch. But that wasn't necessarily <coughs> so at all. This bluish-white light appeared to the left. Uh, there was a chopper there. And, th and this bluish white light appeared to that le that left. What happened then? Well, this was after the lights were still flickering off and on like strobe lights. All of us were on the pave, uh, started moving away from the barracks and went down to the pavement. And uh, we uh, uh, contacted the general uh, with the jeep, and then he told us to uh, get to the crossroad down the hill. So we did. And uh, when we got there. Um, General was in his jeep, and he was talking to somebody on the radio, apparently reserves, and that's when we saw this uh, omelet-shaped uh, bright light. Now we have less three than light. we have less than three minutes, and there's mm -hmm. no way we're going to be able to cover what we need to here. Right. So, um, what happened was is that one of the cop two copters choppers all together uh, were knocked out of the picture. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. One one. Um, was on fire, and the other one uh, lost control, and it landed next to Charlie Company's building. And uh, I, at that time, I had to uh, um, cry out for Charlie Company's uh, assistance to uh, to help the, the pilot, co-pilot, and the gunner. And uh, when we got them out out of the chopper, and these are uh, UH-1HA choppers, um, they were used in Vietnam. Now, you were also being fired upon with balls of light, and, right, we, and that we would burn you. Now, I, 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 don't, I'm, I have to apologize here. I have to move quickly because we're just not going to get enough out here. But the troops, uh, well, let's drop that. But there was an invisible presence that tried to communicate through you. Uh, could you please describe this experience, especially when you were, uh, you were met with, with the, um, the general? Um. I I just had this feeling come over me, and my mind was somehow communicating with this this being, uh, and it was a male being that he wanted to uh, speak to the general uh, through me, and uh, my mind was sort of set aside to the right, and I felt like I was boxed in. Um, my body felt like it was floating off the ground, and uh, I. Somehow, hear heard rumors, rumors, or rumors, and uh, I couldn't quite understand what they were talking about. But it had to be, it had something to do with us, and something well, to do with mathematical equations. I wish we had time to continue here, but we are out of time. John, I want to thank you for joining us, and perhaps you can join us again because there's many other aspects of this that we didn't get a chance to cover.